Despite the early hour, many people were out and about on the morning of August 2nd, 1892. Much like the modern residents of the Valley of the Sun, the denizens of Tempe that morning were trying to accomplish as much as possible before the sweltering summertime temperatures forced them all indoors. Here's just a snapshot of the various people and their activities that morning. A schoolteacher on summer break was clearing some plants from the side of the road. The wife of a local doctor was milking her cows. A 10-year-old boy was fishing in a canal at the intersection of two unpaved roads. A 17-year-old girl was showing off a new buggy to a 15-year-old close friend. And a local farmer was slowly hauling a load of freshly harvested grain toward the Hayden Mill about three miles away. Now, there had been a powerful windstorm the previous night, so this farmer found his way blocked by some downed cottonwood trees. He was in the process of carefully steering his team around this obstacle when the morning quiet was broken by the unmistakable sound of horse hooves coming up on him and rather quickly at that. The farmer looked over his shoulder to see two men on horseback, rifles drawn. Horrified, he tried to leap down from his wagon where he was a sitting duck, but a bullet found him first. It struck him in the back, two inches to the left of his seventh vertebrae, but the bullet traveled in such a way that it severed his spinal cord and then worked its way upward and out near his larynx. The man flopped over, paralyzed, but not dead. One of the gunmen rode up, his rifle trained on the farmer, waiting for any sort of movement. But the man didn't move. He couldn't move. So... His assassins then rode off because it was plain to see that Tom Graham would not be long for this world. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Episode 127. The Pleasant Valley War, Part 8. The Cold War. Welcome back, everyone. Again, a thousand apologies for missing out on last week's episode. We had the cold from Hades in our home, and both the wife and I were struck with it. As a former newspaper man, I pride myself on my ability to set and meet deadlines, so it kind of always kills me when I'm unable to do that. But now the sneezing, coughing, sniffling, aching, can't-sleep sensation has gradually rolled back, meaning we can finally keep our story moving. When last we left off, the Pleasant Valley War seemed to be winding down, as the invasion of the valley by law enforcement had killed John Graham and driven off Tom Graham and Lewis Parker. In the aftermath of all of this, the ominous Committee of Fifty had formed, which intimidated or outright lynched those it deemed rustlers and enemies of good order, resulting in the three-man hanging we talked about at the end of our last episode. However, with the hindsight of more than 130 years, we know that this dramatic removal of the Grahams and the rustlers was more the end of the second act of the conflict which had begun with the killing of the Nameless Shepherd in February 1887. But the climax of the third act won't come until a full five years later. And it's the period in between those two points that we must turn our attention to now, starting with the plight of Tom Graham. 
As I related in our last episode, Tom's flight from Pleasant Valley had been incredibly hurried and he only had what was on him. Wanted by the law, two of his brothers dead and his nephew Lewis Parker on the run, Tom didn't have that many options. His first stop was Prescott, where he stayed in a hotel and tried to work through some legal hurdles to get control of John Graham's estate. However, he didn't stay long and soon enough he found himself in the Salt River Valley, specifically in the burgeoning community of Tempe. But this wasn't a random destination by any means. You see, a year prior, during the mild winter of 1887, Tom had been in the area on this or that business when he first caught sight of Annie Elizabeth Melton. The daughter of a prominent Baptist minister, Annie was a full 15 years younger than Tom. In fact, she was only 16 when he first saw her, when she was climbing a fig tree with her hair in curlers. But this was the age when marriage laws were a little more lax, shall we say, and statutory rape apparently wasn't a thing, so the two soon became an item. Now it was to Annie's side that Tom apparently fled. And when his father Samuel, alerted in Iowa by an inaccurate report that both of his boys had been killed in far off Arizona by rampaging Indians, arrived in town, Tom was able to fill him in on another major piece of news. Annie was six months pregnant. Marriage laws may have been lax, but attitudes about having children out of wedlock certainly weren't. So on October 8, 1887, Tom and Annie were married by her father in his Tempe home. No reports of whether there were shotguns. Tom's next step towards respectability was to try and put the whole bloody affair of the Pleasant Valley War behind him. So he did something that is actually pretty noble. He turned himself in to law enforcement. For the record, the sources are a little muddled here, and it's possible that he may have made this move before marrying Annie, but either way, the result was the same. Sheriff Bill Mulvennan rode down from Prescott to arrest him for the murder of John Tewksbury and William Jacobs. One source even says that this arrest happened on the same day as the wedding. Tom would wind up spending some time in a Prescott jail, where it must have been positively galling to be under the keep of the man that had literally killed his brother. Finally, though, at the end of October 1887, Tom was able to get out of jail on bail, and that was the end of his legal difficulties. Like so many of these cases, the trial was continued and delayed and then just eventually dropped. So if you exclude Tom's ultimate fate, there were no more ramifications for this murder charge. But we can't exactly exclude his ultimate fate now, can we? As a further part of his turn towards respectability, Tom also decided to follow one of the most important rules of public relations. Get your own message out. The bloody feud in Pleasant Valley had been news across the territory, not to mention the entire country, and so when Tom decided to tell his version of events, he was guaranteed people who wanted to listen. On October 6, 1887, the Daily Arizonan ran an article outlining Tom's version of the Pleasant Valley War. In this article, he basically claims that he was nowhere near any of the tragic events that had occurred. He was in Phoenix during the shootout at the Milton Cabin, and in the skirmish between the Tewksbury's and Graham factions that occurred in mid-September 1887. When Mulvennan entered the valley, he was hard at work shoeing horses, 
and said that he had sent John to the Perkins store specifically to see if the sheriff had any warrants for their arrest. Because if so, he was perfectly willing to surrender, don't you know? Though author Eduardo Obregón Pagán does point out that he makes no alibi for the deaths of John Tewksbury and William Jacobs. Another one of his uh, inventions is that he hardly even knew the Blevins family and claimed to not have interacted with them at all until old man Blevins had shown up asking if Tom had seen his lost livestock. He also claimed that Andy Cooper had passed his home a couple times, but nothing more than that. Quite frankly, this is some heavily revisionist history on Tom's part, but it's not like anyone was around to fact check him. The final thing to come out of this interview is Tom swearing that the whole affair in Pleasant Valley had been orchestrated by rich men trying to gobble up all the rangeland in sight. Another bit of improving the truth that feels like a dig at James Stinton, who really did get the ball rolling on the entire conflict. Now, the wonderful thing about this interview is that it was reprinted word for word in Iowa, where Tom's father made sure to spread the word about his son's struggles. It's apparent that Samuel Graham bought Tom's story hook, line, and sinker, or was complicit in his setting the record, not straight, but, you know, bent in a direction favorable to them. Writing to friends back in Iowa, Samuel would say, quote, They informed me that a lot of the desperados and half-blood Indians undertook to clean out Pleasant Valley in order to get the range. End quote. There is no missing the point that in the Graham's perspective of things, being a half-blood Indian, like the Tewksbury's, was the same as being a desperado. And Obregón Pagán seizes on this and points out that the Tewksbury narrative for the conflict is actually very similar to the Graham's, except with themselves as the victims, of course. Yet, in the Tewksbury telling, the various interests are not out to get their land, they are out to get the family. Playing the trump card of being a mixed-race family in a time and a place that didn't like mixed-race families, they painted the whole conflict as a war of extermination against them personally. Both sides had a little bit of the truth, but no one had all of it. In the words of James T. Kirk, reality was probably somewhere in between. Even while Tom was attempting to salvage his public reputation, he went about salvaging his life. He spent the first few weeks of marriage in Prescott, either in a jail cell or working through various legal proceedings. But once that was behind him, it was time to decide exactly what to do with himself. Going back to Pleasant Valley was definitely not an option, both for the bad memories of the death of his family and the still active Committee of 50 breathing out threatenings toward anyone they suspected of being a grand partisan. So Tom left his land and livestock in the hands of intermediaries. The first was Bill Colkert, an interesting choice as Bill was fast friends with the Tewksbury's and was even a member of the infamous Committee of 50. The next was a man named Silas W. Young, a cobbler from Tempe who moved to Pleasant Valley to look after Graham's interests. And Young here allows me to go off on something of a tangent, which you all know I love doing anyway because he is actually the person that the town of Young is named after. In 1890, the community was on the verge of getting its own post office, but to everyone's dismay, they found that the name Pleasant Valley was already taken by a spot near Flagstaff that no longer exists. So the name Young was chosen as the next most fitting designation, as Silas's ranch was in the center of the valley and 
thanks to his remarkable daughter Ola, mail was already being distributed out of there. As a side tangent to this side tangent, 20-something-year-old Ola would be sworn in as Young's first postmistress, a job she took very seriously and would faithfully execute for the next 50 years. So if you've ever wondered why there is no community of Pleasant Valley anymore, but there is a town called Young in the heart of the valley, now you know. But I suppose we should get back to Tom Graham. With affairs in Pleasant Valley left to other men, he turned his energies to farming in the Salt River Valley. He settled on a 160-acre parcel about three miles south of Tempe proper and began clearing the desert with Annie by his side. As Obregon Pagan puts it, quote, They took up residence under a mesquite tree, fending off rattlesnakes and clearing 300 cords of wood before building a modest house. End quote. The family was dealt a blow in 1888, when their young daughter Arvila died from diarrhea and dehydration, while Tom was either out of town on business or in Prescott to testify in one of the many, many, many legal cases swirling about because of the Pleasant Valley War. A year later, the couple would have a second daughter, Estella, who would survive. As Obregón Pagán very ominously puts it, quote, In time, Tom's terrors eased, enough for him to stop sleeping with a gun. Eventually, he stopped carrying one altogether, end quote. Now, we're going to leave Tom there for the moment because we need to catch up with the Tewksbury's and how the years were treating them. Tom was very much wrangled to learn that after their quote-unquote victory in the war, the Tewksbury's had celebrated with a fiesta that the patriarch James was in the habit of throwing. This particular fiesta is said to have lasted a week and was full of gambling, drinking, and barbecuing. Now, this wrinkled Tom because there was a good chance that some of his fatted cows, which he still owned, had been used for this victory celebration. The ongoing legal drama was still a thorn in all their collective sides, however. As I mentioned before, the trials over the killing of Hamp Blevins and John Payne, and then John Tewksbury and William Jacobs, kept getting continued and continued and continued throughout 1887, 1888, and into 1889. There were some 35 Pleasant Valley residents who had to repeatedly make the arduous journey to Prescott, either as defendants in one case or witnesses in another. And this was particularly hard on Jim Tewksbury, who was not a well man. By all accounts, one of the deadliest guns in the entire war, and the man who had started the Middleton Cabin shootout, Jim would have the uh, honor of being the Doc Holiday of this conflict. That is, he was hot-tempered and dying of tuberculosis. One newspaper in Prescott made sure to notice that Jim Tewksbury was quite ill while staying in town at one of his many court appearances in 1888. But when the case was continued until the next year, there was no doubt that Jim would never appear again. During the winter of 1888, Jim did what many people dying of consumption did and would do in the decades to come. He sought the drier air of the Sonoran Desert. Ironically enough, he would be staying at the home of a friend in Tempe in December 1888, not more than a few miles from where Tom Graham was trying to rebuild his life. In fact, if you believe amateur historian Jinx Pyle, Jim wasn't in town to recover. He was in town to finish the family's business. 
He was dying anyway, so what did it matter if he took Tom Graham with him? And though there isn't any direct evidence of this, it does dovetail very nicely with Jim's declaration that no man could kill his brother, let him be eaten by hogs, and live within a mile of him. Apparently Graham, moving well over a mile away to Tempe, hadn't changed Jim's sentiment. Whether he was there to recover his health or assassinate his bitter rival, Jim failed. His health took a turn for the worse, and he died on December 3, 1888, in his friend's home. He became the second Tewksbury brother to die from tuberculosis in the last seven years, after his brother Frank, whose health also nosedived after being dragged to Prescott for a court case. One bright spot for the family is that in late December, and one source claims it was just a week after Jim's death, Mary Ann Tewksbury, the widow of John Tewksbury, remarried. She had since moved down to the old stone building that had been the Perkins store, and it's there that she wed John Rhodes, one of the men that had been in the Tewksbury cabin when Graham forces put it under siege. Rhodes was also the man who had made a break for it under the cover of darkness to get word to Jim Tewksbury to come to their rescue. But that's not the biggest role he'll play in our story, as you'll soon see. Now, this pair would go on to have seven children together, with Rhodes dying in 1918 and Mary Ann living until 1950. Things for the Tewksbury side got a bit worse three and a half years later in April 1892, when George Newton went missing. Newton, as you may or may not remember, was the owner of the Milton cabin, where the shootout had killed Hamp Blevins and John Payne. He was a fast supporter of the Tewksbury's, both financially and otherwise. And Newton is one of those who had gone to court multiple times to testify on behalf of his friends. The Globe-based jeweler was last seen alive by a friend about three miles from a crossing of the Salt River. This friend warned him that the river was swollen with runoff and that he shouldn't attempt to cross it, but Newton was certain that he could make it to the other side without issue. When he didn't make it to his destination, another friend went out in search of him. This man would find Newton's horse, still saddled up and lazily eating grass along a creek bed. He also found Newton's pack horse, which was dead and laying in a pool of receding water. This news was soon communicated to Newton's widow and his friends, including Ed Tewksbury, who began scouring the river for either their friend or his remains. And despite a $500 reward offered by his widow for someone to find her husband's body, the only thing that was found of George Newton was his pistol and gun belt, which were half buried in a sandbar. Now, it's more than a little likely that George Newton simply was a victim of the Salt River and his own hubris. He wasn't the first, nor would he be the last man to misjudge a swollen river and die in an attempt to cross it. But I wouldn't be doing my job if I also didn't pass along that more salacious versions have cropped up ever since he went missing. Some people couldn't help but speculate that Newton got his for his support of the Tewksbury's. Legends of dubious veracity, began to be passed around that the packhorse hadn't died because of a treacherous river, but had in fact been shot through the eye. Like I said, these rumors were probably just that, but it's what people chose to believe in the aftermath. 
It might seem so far that we've entered into a state of peace, where we have two sides that are still smarting, but they are at least separated. Everyone had gone their different way, and the whole incident is now behind them. However, it's more like we entered a period of Cold War. Beneath the surface, tension continued to boil and boil until someone decided to do something about it. One source of tension was a robbery that occurred of a store along Tonto Creek in May 1888, committed by two men, one of which was Tom Graham's foreman. A posse claimed that they had chased the robbers and had managed to grab their horses and saddles, which all belonged to Tom Graham, don't you know? Furthermore, this posse claimed that the two robbers had then fled to the old Graham homestead before eventually making their escape. And the implication here is very clear. Graham must still be bankrolling, or at the very least supporting lawlessness in Pleasant Valley. Down in Tempe, Tom again took advantage of an eager press to put out his version of events. Decrying this whole situation as a quote-unquote put-up job, he insisted that the affair was meant to tarnish his good name. His foreman had actually wrote to him earlier saying that two horses and saddles had gone missing, he claimed. Furthermore, why would the robbers abandon their horses miles from his ranch and then hike there on foot? And the items stolen from the store were horseshoes and other provisions, which were well stocked at the Graham Ranch, so there was no reason for any of his employees to go stealing these items. All in all, I don't think the robbery can be laid at Graham's feet, though his Pleasant Valley neighbors and at least one newspaper at the time were dubious that he wasn't involved at all. Another thing keeping the feud alive was the actions of Charles Duchet, a Graham ally who became Tom's unofficial bodyguard after the killing of his brothers. Duchet was not a nice man. Born Charles English, his face was disfigured from a knife fight he had gotten into in his youth, probably over a woman. And by the time he summoned a priest for his last rites in 1925, he claimed that he had killed 35 men. Now, Duchet has been at the periphery of our story this entire time, but never before was he central enough for me to mention him. As Obregón Pagán says, he was one of a long line of questionable figures that had gathered around the Grams since they had come to Arizona. Being of basically the same temperament as everyone else we've covered, it shouldn't be that surprising that he couldn't let the Pleasant Valley conflict go. For years, the Tewksburys and their associates had received anonymous threatening letters postmarked from Tempe and Phoenix. All these letters were sent to people that Duchet openly detested, so it wasn't a leap to blame him for what author Don Dedera called terrorism by post. Dedera also states, however, that if Duchet was behind these threatening letters, he must have had help. The man could neither read nor write. Indeed, his signature was the simple, X. Among those who received one of these notes was none other than George Newton, so when he went missing, Ed Tewksbury might have naturally assumed that the anonymous poster had finally fulfilled his promises. According to amateur historian Jinx Pyle, Mary Ann Rhodes, nay Tewksbury, once remarked that Tom Graham might have lived out his life in Tempe if it had not been for those letters. 
Pyle also passes along an anecdote from a descendant of Ed, saying that whatever had happened to George Newton as he tried to cross the Salt River sealed the fate of Tom Graham. But Dedera also gives another reason that Tom's days were numbered. In short, he was too prosperous. By 1892, Tom was cultivating 300 acres along the Salt River on the south side of Tempe, and he was listed as being among the most prosperous men in that particular area. He had built a proper home for his family, so he was no longer the man living under a mesquite tree trying to reclaim his life. Furthermore, he was still on the tax records as the owner of three ranches in Pleasant Valley, and he was still running cattle on those ranches. In short, he had a family, new friends, and more than a few assets. Tom Graham was not a poor man. In 1892, he approached a man about selling his cattle in Pleasant Valley on the condition that he drive them down to Tempe. Graham gladly struck this deal, but then went and bragged about it. He even made some claims that the Tewksburys were all scared of him, which was probably not the most prudent move in the world. So Tom had the type of prosperity that would have wrinkled Ed Tewksbury and his surviving family. As Obregón Pagán puts it, to them, Tom was a filthy backstabber who had sold them out to Stinton for money and then dragged them in and out of court in Prescott. And worst of all, he had boasted about killing their brother John. To have him suddenly succeeding in life was almost too much to bear. So, with their enemy ascendant financially, an ally mysteriously dead, threatening letters sent from where Tom was living, and the fact that known thieves had been tracked back to his ranch, well, the Tewksburys had a multitude of reasons to do what they did next. You might be asking yourself, how did the Tewksburys know how Graham was doing when he was doing that by the Salt River and they were still up in Pleasant Valley? The answer to that question is a man named Robert Bowen. Bowen was a Tempe-based businessman who had used some profits from running cattle in Pleasant Valley to establish feeding lots in the Salt River Valley. He also built a hotel and bar along Mill Avenue in Tempe, where he was doing quite well for himself. But to run his cattle business in Pleasant Valley, he had hired one of the best cowboys he could get, namely John Rhodes, Ed Tewksbury's now brother-in-law and someone who certainly was not neutral in the conflict. And wouldn't you know it, Rhodes spent much of the summer of 1892 doing work for Bowen, and so he slept, ate, and drank a lot at his benefactor's hotel and bar during that time. While Rhodes was in town, Bowen managed to casually reference that he would be moving his cattle to some property adjacent to Tom Graham's place. And just like that, Rhodes became aware of exactly where to find Tom Graham and how he was doing. Bone would later claim that he was neutral in the Pleasant Valley War and that he wasn't trying to tip Rhodes off or anything like that, but merely giving a geographical reference point. However, Bowen had been aware of the difficulties between the Grahams and the Tewksburys and would later testify on Rhodes' behalf before a jury, so there does remain the possibility that he, in fact, tipped off the whole Tewksbury side and painted a giant red X on Tom Graham's back. Which leads us back around to where we started today's episode. Tom Graham arose early on the morning of August 2nd, 1892, in an attempt to get to the Hayden Mill with a load of grain and back home again 
before the scorching summer temperature set in. It was around 7.20 a.m. when the two gunmen closed in on him. Over the course of the following few hours, Tom would be able to tell people that they had fired two shots. One had struck and paralyzed him, the other had missed. He had toppled from his wagon, which had come to a dead stop as his horses suddenly didn't have any commands. One of the gunmen made for the cover of some trees lining the road, while the second approached the down Graham with his rifle before assuring himself that the job had been done. This rider then turned himself eastward and made off with great haste, passing 17-year-old Molly Cummings and her 15-year-old friend, to whom she was showing off her new buggy. They would later testify that the rider passed them, but because of the fallen cottonwood trees, he had to maneuver his horse so close to them that he actually bumped their buggy. Cummings described him as big and heavy-set with dark skin, she originally thought he was a Mexican, with a dark mustache. He wore a light-colored hat with a red scarf around it and some black cloth at his throat. She would also testify that as he passed by, he was close enough that she could have reached out and touched him. Neighbors would eventually be summoned and a doctor sent for, with Graham being taken to the Cummings' home. Though everyone tried to assure him that there was hope, Graham, paralyzed from the neck down with only limited head control, knew he was about to die. Despite his injuries and the opiates administered for the pain, Graham did a lot of talking. He was able to give his account of the shooting several times, including naming his own killers as John Rhodes and Ed Tewksbury. Toward the end, he even asked by name for a professional tracker to be hired to hunt down his killers. Annie and their daughter Estella were summoned, and throughout the day he would ask that Ella would kiss him goodbye, something that she would remember for the rest of her life. When his wife kissed him, she was shocked about how cold and lifeless he already felt. One of the last pieces of news he received, though it was of cold comfort, was that one of the suspected killers, John Rhodes, had been apprehended. Around 4 p.m., Tom Graham succumbed to his wounds, becoming the Pleasant Valley War's last official victim. With the last of the Grahams now in his grave, all eyes across the Salt River Valley turned toward law enforcement and the legal system to see if his killers would actually be brought to justice. And that's where I would like to leave things this week. But join me next week as the trial of both Rhodes and Tewksbury would ultimately result in both possibly getting away with murder. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.